everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I am your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss, you know, what I love about horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history and how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on for the day reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So the month of the 80s is over, and I now will be focusing on the 90s for the month of October. This decade, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for me because I pretty much was a 90s girl. Like, I was born in 1982, and I started elementary school in 1987, but the majority of my growing up and teen years was spent in the 90s. So I'm excited to see what, like, the 90 horror movies bring. I've heard many people, you know, you know, I, I like to read a lot of stuff, and, you know, I'm on social media stuff, and... I have heard a lot of people say that 90s was the worst decade for horror because the big franchises, you know, like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and so on, started to kind of like play themselves out, becoming like cheesy um, mockeries of themselves, and then kind of started to fade away, which I still love all of them anyways. (laughs) And I know that the later movies, you know, in these franchises weren't the best of them, you know, the earlier ones are usually better, but I still enjoyed them because you know me, like I've said before, I will always find something I like in every horror movie I see. But I can see like where this opinion kind of is coming from about the big franchises becoming less scary, more cheesy. And that's why some people think that the 90s horror movies weren't as good as other decades. So I get it. I see it. But I still love all the big franchises, even all the quote bad ones. (laughs) But I still believe that the 90s brought us many wonderful and scary horror movies, and I'm excited to kind of explore a couple of these movies, especially the ones I've never seen before. And that's actually the one I'll be discussing today I have never seen, and it's a completely new one for me to see. So I'm happy to kind of like finally be getting around to see it. Like, I think now I'm backtracking a little. I think why some people don't like 90s horror is because the slasher flick subgenre, which was a very popular subgenre, like back in, especially in the 80s, and it's actually one of my favorite subgenres, kind of took a back seat in the 90s and made way for other subgenres to shine, such as like psychological horror and actually the the teen slasher self-aware horror movies subgenre kind of came out too. So sorry, again, you know me, I like to backtrack because I, when I think of something, I'm like, bam, gotta say it. So I think that might be wise because a lot of people associate horror movies with the slasher flick. Like most people I talk to who don't know a lot about horror movies, they're always um, naming the ones that are considered the slasher flick subgenre, not any of the other subgenres that are out there. So I think that might be why people don't like the 90s horror movies because that subgenre did kind of take a back seat and made way for a lot of other subgenres to kind of come out and shine. So anyways, I'm going to stop talking about, you know, nothing. And I'm going to move on to my first movie of the 1990s, which is actually 1990s Jacob's Ladder. Directed by Adrian Lin, starring Tim Robbins as Jacob, Elizabeth Pena as Jesse, Danny Aiello as Louie, who was in The Stuff when I was doing the 80s month, Um, Matt Craven as Michael, Pruitt Taylor Vince as Paul, Jason Alexander as Gary, and Patricia Columber as Sarah. So I think this one was actually a very much a perfect balance between reflecting history at the time or just reflecting history in general and fears of society and psychological and like mental health. So I think it did a a really good balance. So like some of the horror history I know was like reflecting on the Vietnam war, well, reflecting on the Vietnam war, how it affected the men who kind of came back from it. 
PTSD, how people are kind of treated who suffer from it, like how the outside world who doesn't understand what the person with the PTSD is suffering, how they're suffering, how they are perceived by, you know, the outside world. I think it also shows like battling one's own demons, you know, like how people, it's a fear people have of like having to confront those demons. And I think it reflects on that. Um, Definitely like government conspiracies, especially like government conspiracies with the military, such as like drug experiments performed on Vietnam soldiers, which I'll get into later, which is another conspiracy, you know, something that may, may, you know, may not have happened. We don't know. So psychology and mental health definitely got like PTSD, paranoia, hallucinations, guilt, grief. Again, there's a lot of metaphors and symbolism, especially for like people's inner demons, death, you know, how someone suffering from PTSD sees the real world. Um, and definitely some um, id, ego, super ego, which I'll talk about a little later, and primal fear and anger. So so what is this movie about? And I took this one from IMDb because sometimes um, a lot of these like psychological horror movies are hard for me to describe, and I'll admit it, because sometimes they tend to be all over the place. So this one I just took right from IMDb. And it says, New York postal worker Jacob Singer is trying to keep his frayed life from unraveling. His days are increasingly being invaded by flashbacks to his first marriage his now dead son, and his tour of duty in Vietnam. Although his new girlfriend tries to help Jacob keep his grip on sanity, the line between reality and delusion is steadily growing more and more uncertain. So again, I'm going to move on to the subgenre. Um, I would say this movie falls under the psychological horror subgenre. There's a lot like going on within this movie. It you know jumps around from one life to another, and you, you don't really know which reality is the real one. And it deals with so much like psychological aspects or it has so many psychological aspects within it and mental illnesses that it tackles. But I think it mostly focuses on PTSD, to be quite honest. This movie has like hallucinations and delusions and paranoia and just so much that falls under the category of like psychological horror. So again, I'll go over the definition in case anybody's new to the show and hasn't heard it. Psychological horror. This subgenre may feel the most realistic because it builds the horror by playing on people's fears, anxieties, and phobias. These movies are designed to make the viewer feel as if, quote, it could happen to them. In addition, a big plot point in many of these movies are people going crazy due to a variety of reasons, such as isolation and war. These movies tend to focus more on people being the monsters over the supernatural or creatures. So this one, I'm basically, um, I just decided I'm going to go over and take a deep dive and pretty much talk about some of the metaphors and symbolism throughout the movie. Like, in a way, as I was watching this movie, the first thing I thought of was kind of like Carnival of Souls. I did that one when I did the month of the 60s. So Carnival of Souls kind of has the same idea of like this woman, you don't know if she's going crazy or if she's really dead. And then it and the whole movie can be seen as like an allegory for like death or kind of like purgatory or be seen as an allegory for like mental illness. And in our movie specifically, it'd be PTSD. I think the movie is really focusing on. So going back, like this movie definitely reminded me of Carnival Souls in that aspect because there's so much going on in this movie and definitely the whole allegory of death and mental illness. Both these movies have that kind of similarity where you don't really know what's going on. Um, is the, again, is the person dead? Are they having mental illness? Um, you know, an undiagnosed mental illness. You don't really, you know, know until the end of the movie. But again, this movie definitely has a lot of symbolism and metaphors. And definitely I'm going to focus on 
the death allegory and like the PTSD. And then I kind of want to go on and explain like this scene that kind of tells you pretty much what's going on in the movie. Like it kind of wraps everything up and you realize what's actually happening in this movie. So I'm going to start um, with the opening of the movie, just so you get kind of an idea of what's going on with the movie. So the movie opens with Jacob and some of his army buddies. They're in Vietnam. And it even has like the words up that says Mekong Delta, October 6, 1971. The soldiers are kind of messing around, picking on one another. And then two men kind of complain that their heads hurt. And then they both kind of like, it's like they have blood coming out of their mouths. And then one kind of like falls on the ground and starts convulsing, like having a seizure. And then the other one just kind of like screams and starts like spinning around. It's just screaming because his head hurts. You know, and then all of a sudden they're being like fired at by what I assume is, you know, the enemy, you know, is firing at them. Jacob is trying to help the one who's actually on the floor convulsing. And then Jacob begins to like run into the, I think the jungle. He turns around and he stabbed with what I want to say is a bayonet. It's like a knife that's attached to the end of a rifle. And then he wakes up, he's on the subway and he looks at these two ads which basically tells us what this movie is going to be about in the way, like the metaphor and symbolism that I guess it's trying to explain. And I would say maybe a little foreshadowing. So the first sign or ad says, New York may be a crazy town, but you'll never die of boredom. The second one says, hell, that's what life can be doing drugs, but it doesn't have to be that way. Help is available day or night. So that's kind of like, I guess, a little foreshadowing we have. So I'm going to start with the PTSD kind of metaphor, like for someone who's suffering from this specific mental illness, especially from war, because that's um, what a lot of people associate PTSD with is um, people who have come back from war. So Jacob has flashbacks of Nam throughout the movie. He has a girlfriend who kind of gets annoyed with his antics a lot. And he's trying to like reach out, I feel like at times to people because he knows he's ha there's something going on with him. He's having these episodes but he kind of gets ignored a lot and overlooked by others, you know. And before I get into these examples, of course, let me just quickly go over the definition of what PTSD is. PTSD is, sorry. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is a mental health condition that's triggered by a terrifying event, either experiencing it or witnessing it. Symptoms may include flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety, as well as uncontrollable thoughts about the event. That's from Mayo Clinic. So, that's just a quick definition of what PTSD is about uh, or the definition of what it is. And a lot of times people do associate it with um, war veterans, even though it can be anybody who's experienced a very traumatic event is what the definition says. So throughout the movie, Jacob has flashbacks to Nam when his battalion was under attack, which I said, in the, which was the beginning of the movie and how seriously injured he was. So I'm going to squeeze the flashbacks in. Um, I don't want to do them just like each one back to back. I'm going to try to squeeze them in as I'm talking about other um, ways that the PTSD is um, symbolic within the movie kind of idea, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that's what I'm going to do is like say some flashbacks, give another example, and then give another flashback in kind of idea. So I hope that makes sense. Sorry. So the first flashback is right after his girlfriend, Jesse, jumps into the shower with him. And this flashback to Nam is Jacob is injured. He's in the jungle. And it looks like he's trying to crawl back to safety, back to camp, because um, it is like in a POV shot from his point of view. And then it's kind of like what he's hearing and seeing. And then he hears other men like talking throughout the jungle and he's trying to say, help me, but he doesn't come out very loud. And then he wakes up like he had been sleeping. Next, 
Jacob is seeing his chiropractor, Louis. When Louis cracks his neck, he has this other flashback. And again, it's from Jacob's point of view. And we see a couple of soldiers who have found him. And one says, I found one. I think he's still alive. And then he flashes back and he's back to, you know, Louis and the chiropractor. Then we have this scene where like Jacob, I feel like he's trying to reach out and talk to someone. And it's his old therapist because he's having a hard time. But the nurse, like receptionist, just kind of talks to him just like he's crazy and keeps dismissing him when he's kind of clearly seeking help. And let me go over the scene and then I'll try to explain what I'm trying to say because sometimes I feel like I don't explain it right. And I apologize for that. So Jacob, I need to see Dr. Carlson, please. Nurse, Carlson, is he new here? Jacob, new? No, he's been here for years. Nurse, not according to my charts. Do you have an appointment? Jacob, uh, no, listen, I need to see him. I know where his room is. Just give me a pass. I won't be long. 10 minutes. Nurse, our doctors are seen by appointment only. Jacob, damn. I was in the veteran's outpatient program. He knows me. Nurse, what's your name? Jacob, he says, Singer. Jacob Singer. Nurse, I've got a lot of work here. Haven't even eaten my lunch yet. She starts looking through the file, the files in the filing cabinet. I'm sorry, but uh, there's no record of a Jacob Singer in our files. Jacob. What do you mean no records? Nurse, do I have to spell it out for you? There is nothing there. Jacob, that's ridiculous. I've been coming here for years. Listen to me. I'm, I'm, I need to see Dr. Carlson. Nurse, if it's an emergency, we have staff, a staff of psychiatric social workers. There's about an hour's wait. Would you just fill out one of these forms for me, please? Jacob, I don't want to see a social worker. I want to talk to Dr. Carlson. He knows me. And then like when the nurse bends over, um, to pick up like this broken piece of glass that Jacob had kind of hit the like wall desk and it fell and broke. Anyways, she's picking it up and her hat falls off and he sees almost like horns that look like they're trying to grow out of her head. Obviously a hallucination. And then right after that, we find out that Dr. Carlson actually died in a car accident. His car blew up with him inside. But anyways, going back to that scene. The nurse the whole time is so annoyed and angered with Jacob when he's clearly in distress and looking for help. And I feel like sometimes this is how people with mental illness are treated, which is why at times some of us who suffer from different mental illnesses feel like a burden. You know, we're trying to reach out and then we get ignored or people get angry. They get annoyed with us because, you know, we're, quote, Debbie Downers or whatever. You know, and here Jacob's reaching out for help from the nurse and the nurse just doesn't seem to have time or energy or any compassion for this man who is clearly seeking help, you know, and if Dr. Carlson died, I'm pretty sure the nurse knew about it. So why didn't she just tell him or say, hey, uh, come over here. Let me talk to you in private. Instead, she just brushes him off like there's no record of you. You know, there's no Dr. Carlson. I haven't eaten lunch. I'm too busy for this. Why don't you sit down, fill out this form and see one of our social workers? And I just feel like that's definitely a representation, um, not just for someone suffering from PTSD when they're trying to seek help because they're having these hallucinations and these flashbacks, but someone with mental illness in general when, and like I said, I suffer from body dysmorphic disorder. I got depression and anxiety. And sometimes I just, you know, I myself feel like I'm a burden on people when I'm trying to reach out. And that's kind of like how the nurse was acting, in my opinion, was like, he's a burden. I don't have time for this. And that's how some people feel. So I think that's a good representation of someone suffering from PTSD, reaching out and then getting kind of overlooked. So then we have another flashback to Nam. 
And this is right after he has this like hallucination, kind of a bad episode after the quote party scene. So he ends up on the floor screaming because He's watching Jesse, his girlfriend, dancing with what looks like some kind of like winged demon creature. And like while he's looking around, he's seeing other like demonic looking people. And then like the demon's horn like shoots out of, you know, Jesse's mouth and he just starts screaming and falls on the floor. And he's obviously having some kind of hallucination, an episode, and he's having, he's struggling. It's very much obvious in the scene he's having a struggle. So. The flashback to Nam is right after he falls onto the floor and it kind of looks like, again, it's a POV shot from Jacob's point of view. It looks like Jacob is being carried off to help. He's being like saved by his fellow soldiers. Some of them have obviously found him and it says, Jesus, look at that. His guts are hanging out. Another one says, you'll have to push him back in. So then right after that scene, um, the party scene I was just talking about in that flashback, we're back at Jesse and Jacob's apartment. And then here's another, um, I think, you know, metaphor, symbolism, or just a scene, basically a scene that really represents, again, you know, being very symbolic of someone suffering from PTSD, like some of the things they experience. So again, it's right after this, the scene I just mentioned in the flashback, um, they're in the apartment and Jesse is just being so rude to Jacob. And she's like so annoyed and angry with him because he had a hallucination because something really scared him. That's a bothersome to her. And she says, I have never I have never been so mortified in my whole life. Screaming like that? I don't understand what's gotten into you, Jake. You're not acting normal. There's been too many crazies in my life. I don't want it anymore. I'm tired of men flipping out on me. If you go crazy, Jake, you're going crazy by yourself. You understand? <laughs> I'm thinking while I'm watching this, I'm like, so Jacob is obviously having a sort of, again, like I said, a hallucination episode, or he's having an episode, you know, he had a flashback due to his PTSD, due to his tour of duty in Vietnam, you know, he obviously, you know, he was seriously injured. He obviously saw things that, you know, traumatized him and she doesn't even seem to care or even show him any compassion or any sympathy for what just happened to him, you know? And it's like, she's not even interested in asking him what's wrong. What happened? Are you okay? How can I help? Like if she truly cared about the man, she'd be trying to help him, not attacking him because how dare he have this flashback and episode during a party they were at and embarrass her? Because we know that was on purpose, right? Jacob was doing it on purpose to, you know, upset her. But she makes it all about her. And that's what annoys me is that she doesn't even, I can't even say it. Like, she just doesn't even show him any compassion. You know, it's like, how dare Jacob have this uncontrollable episode, you know, due to his trauma in front of all those people and completely embarrass Jesse? Like, really? I don't know. It's just... Anyways, and then at the end of that, she has the audacity to call him crazy and then say that she will leave him if he goes crazy, not help him, not support him and encourage him to seek help, maybe even go to group therapy with him. No, she will leave him when he needs her the most. And it's just a scene where it's like, sometimes that's how people treat you when you deal with mental illness. Again, it's like, it's all about them. How dare you do this to me? Your problem is not my problem. I'm not here to support you. I'm not here to help you. And it's a, again, I think it's a very good representation of sometimes what people are going through. And again, it's just, it's a very upsetting scene because, you know, Jacob's having a hard time. He's dealing with something and Jesse just doesn't care. You know, she saw it as a personal attack on her when she really should be helping him, asking him if he's okay and trying to find a way to support him and encourage him to go to, 
um, you know, therapy or get help. So that's another scene. So again, later on, there's another flashback and it's after he's having what I believe is like a dream or, you know, a jump in reality kind of thing. And he's in bed with his ex-wife, Sarah. And then he has this flashback to Nam. And it's still, again, a POV of Jacob. And these men are, are calling for, it sounds like they're calling for help um, to save him. And one of them was like, watch his head. The other one says, move it. And the other one says, don't think we got a fucking chance down here. Declare an emergency. Over. So I'm pretty sure they're on a walkie-talkie. And then he wakes up and he's in the bathtub in this ice bath because the scene before he wakes up in that reality with his ex-wife is that he was in a bathtub full of ice because he had a fever of 106 and they had to lower his body temperature. So he wakes up and he's back in the bath. So then we move on and Jacob is back in his apartment. And he seems like he's kind of having like a depressive low. And it seems like it's been for a little while, like um, Jesse even says for like two weeks. And he's been staying in the house, looking through these like biblical and like scholarly books about demons and hell. And it's just so obvious by the way he looks. And he looks so distressed and so disheveled. And it's obviously he's having a hard time distinguishing between realities, between these flashbacks. It's like he keeps jumping around from one reality back to another. And then he's having flashbacks to numb. And he's having a hard time. It's very obvious he's suffering and he needs help and he's having a hard time and he needs some support and he needs some compassion from, you know, the person who's supposed to love him and be with him. So Jesse goes, it's not healthy. It's not good for your mind. Go take a walk or something. Do something. Go to a movie. Go enjoy yourself. One of us should be having a good time. And then she like walks up because he's not responding to her. She walks up and gets right up to his face and is like, is anybody in there? anybody home and her eyes kind of go black um and she gets like this demonic look jacob pushes her and he's like who are you obviously scared obviously having hallucination and jesse's like fuck you two weeks of this shit i've had enough go ahead and rot here if you want so i'm thinking oh i'm sorry jesse that jacob's mental illness is such a burden and annoyance to you like during these two weeks that you just mentioned, like during these two weeks, he's having this depressive episode and he's having this hard time. Did you help him? Did you try to help him? Did you even try to get him help? Like, did you empathize at all with him or even try to like understand what he's going through? Like Jacob needs her right now and he needs her to be there for him and to be supportive and be strong for him. And she basically just tells him to sit there and rot. And I just, again, it's another one of those like, interesting um little scenes that to me represents someone suffering from ptsd what they're going through but having someone who's not supportive for them there you know and again they're having this episode but the person's making it all about them and again not everyone's like that but i think a lot of times when people suffer from mental illness that's kind of how they perceive the world looking in on them like they're the burden they're the annoyance i know for myself i feel that way a lot of the times like i'm a burden on people or i'm annoying them so sometimes I don't even bother. So I think that's a representation in this movie, very symbolic of that feeling that most people with mental illness tend to feel and internalize on themselves. Again, if that makes sense. So another flashback comes and this is after he meets up. So this, this flashback happens right after he meets up with his friend, Paul, which is one of his old army buddies. And then after they have this talk, Paul gets into his car and it blows up and that and you know Jacob's blown backwards and he has his flashback and it's the soldiers getting Jacob onto this like gurney and trying to get him up into this helicopter to load him into the helicopter and as he's in the helicopter and it's flying off it's being shot at and the pilot um yeah the pilot gets shot and killed so and that's where it ends is the pilot gets shot and killed and you just see Jacob's face as he's in the helicopter 
Then we have the last flashback before the ending when we kind of realize what's actually going on. And the soldiers are working. You can tell the soldiers are trying to work to keep him alive. And again, this one, I think if I remember correctly, it's from his POV again. And one's like, careful. The other one says, shit. Now move it, guys. We're losing him. The other one's like, watch it. Careful. What's taking them? And that's the last flashback that you see before again the ending. So those are just a few examples, I think, of how PTSD is represented in this movie. You know, there's more throughout the movie, um, but I just want to choose a couple of examples to explain. And I hope I explained them correct. And I hope you guys understood what I'm saying. Because, again, sometimes my mind just goes faster than I can speak. It's kind of the same way when I'm doing notes. My mind goes faster than I can write them out. So I just think that this movie has a lot of representations of how the outside world perceives someone and treats someone with um, mental illness, especially, you know, with this one as PTSD, and then how someone suffering from the mental illness sees themselves and how they see um, their, like, how they perceive themselves to others, too, is like how, you know, the outside world perceives them and then how they believe it, you know, that they might be a burden or it might be annoyance, but they're really seeking, they really need help you know, when they try to seek help. They feel like they're, um, you know, they tend to be overlooked sometimes. Not always. Like, you know, I just think this movie kind of shows that aspect of mental illness, that side that a lot of people don't talk about, which is how we internalize things, how we feel, and how sometimes people don't reach out because they don't want to feel like a burden anymore and they don't want to be an annoyance. That's kind of, the, I think, the point I'm trying to get at. So I'm going to move on. And I'm going to move on to, like, the death symbolism throughout the movie. And Jacob is seeing, like, demons and experiencing different realities there's even points where people just tell straight up tell him he's died so it's like is he in hell is he in purgatory and again let me go through a few examples through the movie i'll explain them the best i can and then i'm going to kind of explain what i think is going on you know whether i think it's hell or purgatory kind of idea so one thing that i picked up on that kind of goes along i guess with the death metaphor is that you know, along with all these demons he's seeing, I feel like Jacob has a guardian angel throughout the movie, and it's in the form of his chiropractor, Louis. Jacob's always going to him, and Louis seems to generally care about Jacob and really wants to help him. And he's very, like, supportive and encouraging, and he listens to him, he gives him advice, and he just... I feel like that's what he's supposed to be in the movie. I could be wrong again, you know, but what I saw him as was Jacob's guardian angel. So... Jacob gets to see, he sees Louis because he's having back problems. Louis cracking his back and he's working on him. They're talking, you know, Sarah, Jacob's ex-wife kind of comes up in conversation. Then he has that one of the non-flashbacks and he comes back and Jacob's like, what did you do to me? Louis, I had to get in there. It's a deep adjustment. Rest a moment. Let us set a bit. Jacob, I had a weird flash just now. Louis, what? Jacob, I don't know. I've been having them recently. And he looks at Louis. You know, you look like an angel, Louis, like an overgrown cherub. Anyone ever tell you that? Louis, yeah, you, every time I see you. Jacob, you're a lifesaver, Louis. Louis, I know. So it's like right there, it's like the fact that Jacob tells Louis that he looks like an angel, and apparently he, see it, he says this every single time he goes and sees Louis, tells me that this means something. And again, I see Louis as Jacob's guardian angel, keeping him safe, kind of guiding him, advising him, trying to kind of help him realize that he's dead and he needs to move on without flat out saying it to him. But it's just the whole idea, like, that's, I think it's, sim he's symbolic of a, I guess, you know, symbolic of death, you know, like, the guy's really dead, he doesn't know it, but here's Louis, the angel, trying to guide him on his way, kind of idea. So, next, there's this kind of short scene, and it's at the party scene with Jesse, 
um, before the dancing with the demon. And he's walking up these flight of stairs and this woman offers to read him his palm. And she's, you know, telling him about the different lines on his hand. And then she looks at this last line and she's like, hmm, you have a very strange line, hun. And they both start laughing. And she goes, no, it's not funny. See, according to this, you're already dead. They both laugh again. She's like, you're out of here, baby. And they laugh. And Jacob's like, oh, what can you do? So I just, again, that's like one of those scenes that just flat out says like, he's dead, but he's not catching on. Um, He's not, well, pretty much he's just not catching on to these dead. And that's for a, a lot of different reasons. And then I'll get into that in the end. What I think is the reason why he's kind of stuck in this like, is he, is he not dead kind of idea and why he's not, if he is dead, why he's not moving on. But that was just this really short scene that just kind of flat out was like, oh, here's your lifeline. You're dead. Like you're not even alive. And it's kind of like, okay. So anyways, Jacob's taken to the hospital after he's hurt himself because he's jumped out of this moving car because these people uh, abducted him. And the hospital staff says he needs an x-ray. They take him down to the basement and it's like a dank, dark basement. It's like a real basement. Then they wheel him through what looks like an asylum where he sees a lot of weird looking people and like demons, dead bodies, body parts on the floor. You know, basically it's a very scary place. Then they bring him to this operating room and they strap him down to the table and he sees Jezzy and she's one of the nurses. And he says, Jezzy, get me out of here. And I'm just going to call the evil doctor, doctor. Where do you want to go? Jacob, home, doctor, home. This is your home. You're dead. Jacob, dead. No, no, no. I just hurt my back. I'm not dead. Doctor, what are you then? Jacob, I'm alive. Doctor, then what are you doing here? Jacob, I don't know. This isn't happening. Doctor, what is happening? Jacob, get me out of here. Doctor, there is no out of here. You've been killed. Don't you remember? And then this like doctor with no eyes, it's kind of like his skin is over his eyes, not like his eyes have been pulled out, their skin over his eyes, takes out this needle, stabs Jacob in the forehead, and he screams, and then he has another flashback. So here the doctor is actually telling him he's dead and that he was killed. And it seems like this has happened twice now in the two scenes I just mentioned that he's flat out told he's dead. Uh, on top of those two scenes, throughout the movie, it's being hinted at towards him that he's dead. And in order, I feel like in order to move on, you need to accept that you're dead and you kind of need to make peace with your life. And this movie is kind of like tackling that in more ways than one and very symbolically, you know, that Jacob's dead or he's dying. He's in and out of consciousness. But, you know, throughout the movie, he's being hinted at that he's dead. And then like two people's flat out say you are dead. Again, trying to, you know, again, it, this movie reminded me a lot of Carnival of Souls because like there's a lot of scenes in that movie where like you don't know if she's dead or if you don't know if she's suffering from mental illness. And the movie kind of flops back and forth. And this one is doing kind of the same thing. It's like, what's going on? Is he really dead? Why are these people saying this to him? Is he having hallucinations, delusions, just these flashbacks? Is he just having a really hard time and needs to get help for his PTSD? Or is he really dead? So I definitely think, again, throughout the movie, the death symbolism is being hinted at, you know, in different ways, again, symbolically. And then there's different times where twice that I noticed where he's flat out told he's dead kind of idea. So, so moving on. Louis shows up at the hospital and he takes um, Jacob away. He brings him to his office to help him with his back and again, take care of Jacob. And Louis says, well, you've done it to yourself this time, haven't you? Jacob, am I dying, Louis? Louis, from a slip disc? That'll be a first. Jacob, I was in hell. I don't want to die, Louis. Louis, well, I'll see what I can do about it. Jacob, it's all pain. 
Louis, straighten out your head. Relax. Backs his back. You ever read Meister Eckhart? Jacob, no. Louis, how did you ever get your doctorate without reading Eckhart? Relax. Backs his back again. Okay, good. Now turn over gently. Right side. The other right, okay? You're a regular basket case, you know? Eckhart saw help too. He said, the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of life. Your memories, your attachments. They burn them all away. But they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. So, the way he sees it, if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you made your peace, then the devils are really angels, freeing you from the earth. It's just a matter of how you look at it, that's all. So don't worry, okay? Okay? So, Louis still is trying to guide Jacob into the afterlife is how I feel. Like, he doesn't tell Jacob he's dead. He gives him these little hints and advises him. And he, he really wants Jacob to move on. You know, again, I really feel like he's his guardian angel. You know, Louis wants him to make peace with the life he lived in order for him to move on. So again, like, I think he's very much symbolic of a guardian angel. He's supposed to be helping him kind of realize he's dead and move on and say like, hey, like the reason why you're seeing devils and demons is because you haven't made peace with what had happened in your life. So they're tearing at your soul. Um, if you make peace, you're, you will be able to move on kind of idea. So last is the ending, or it's kind of like right near the ending. Uh, Jacob goes to Sarah's, his ex-wife's apartment, and he sits on the couch. He looks over to the stairs and he sees Gabe, which um, throughout the movie you find out is his son that died before he went to Vietnam. And Gabe is sitting on the stairs playing with his toy. Jacob goes, Gabe, Gabe, hi, dad. They hug. Gabe looks at him and says, it's okay. Come on, let's go up. Come on. And he grabs his father's hand and they both walk up the stairs into the light. So a part of it's like Jacob felt so guilty and such grief over the death of his son. I believe that he was in purgatory. So as in the beginning of this little section about death, I said, like, is he in hell? Is he in purgatory? I believe he was in purgatory. For me, everything seems to point to purgatory. So the demons are trying to scare him. Um, people are telling him he's dead. He's trying, and they're basically trying to get him to accept that he's dead. But then at the same time, he has Louis, his guardian angel, trying to kind of guide him to the afterlife and help him. You know, Louis trying to tell him, you need to accept your life for what it was, guide him to get to the afterlife, while the demons are trying to keep him in purgatory kind of idea. So, but I felt that in order for Jacob to truly move on, he had to let go of the guilt and grief that he held on to due to the, you know, death of his son. So once he accepted that his son was gone, you know, once he accepted the fact that his son was gone, it wasn't his fault. He was able to kind of move on and move on with his son kind of idea. So that's kind of like the last thing I was trying to like say, like, and it's very symbolic of death. It, you know, it doesn't really show, it doesn't show that he's dying at that point. It just shows him symbolically moving up the stairs into the light. So. I'm going to move on to the ending in a sense. Like it's not really the ending again. It's actually right before that scene I just mentioned. Um, it's kind of like what really happened, like what's really going on in this movie. So this is a pretty long scene and I apologize for that. Um, but it explains pretty much what happened to Jacob. And then I'll go back and again, try to explain it the best that I can. So it's a character, Michael. He had called Jacob and wants to meet with him. So Michael, so first I'm arrested, right? Best LSD I ever made right down the drain. I figured this is it, man. 20 years in the can if I'm lucky. That was 1968. Jacob, long time ago. Michael, really? Next thing I know, 
I'm on Rikers Island. You ever been there, man? Well, suddenly, they take me from my cell, okay? They throw me in a waiting room with, like, bank teller windows. Four army colonels with medals up their asses are standing on the other side. They say to me, if I come to Vietnam for two weeks, no action, mind you, just work in a lab, they'll drop the charges and wipe the record clean. I'd only been in jail for, like, 13 hours. I already knew Nam couldn't be any worse. Jacob, shows how little you knew. Michael, yeah, really. They had me by the balls. The next thing I know, I'm in Saigon, and I'm working in a top-secret lab synthesizing mind-altering drugs, not the street stuff. They had us isolating special properties, the dark side, okay? They wanted a drug that increased aggressive tendencies. They were scared. They were worried. They figured you guys were too soft, not fighting up to your potential. They wanted something to stir you up, make you mad, you know, tap into your anger. And we did it. Most powerful thing I ever saw. Even a bad trip, and I've had my share, do not compare to the fury of the ladder. Jacob, the ladder? Michael, yeah, that's what they called it. A fast trip, straight down the ladder, right to the primal fear, right to the base of anger. Uh, so just a second um, before I go back to what Michael was saying. When he says that I am the primal fear, like right to the base anger, I think he's definitely referring to Freud. And Freud had come up with this idea of like in the person's mind, they have the id, ego, and superego. And he's definitely talking about the id part of the mind or the id part of the brain. Because the id um, has the, um, or the id holds basic instincts, like basic human instincts. Um, and it's pretty much where, you know, primal fear and anger lies within the human brain. So anyways, Michael continues. I'm telling you, man, it was powerful. I don't need to tell you. You already know. We did experiments on jungle monkeys. It worked. They bashed each other's heads in, gouged out their eyes, chewed off their tails. The brass loved it. Then they made us try it on Charlie. We, uh, we took these POWs, you know, just kids really, and we put them in this courtyard and we fed them huge doses of the stuff, man. I mean, they were worse than the monkeys, you know. I didn't know men could do those things. Anyway, there was this big offensive coming up, right? Everyone knew it. Time Magazine, Huntley Brinkley, and the brass was scared because they knew we couldn't win. Morale was down. It was ugly in the States. Do you remember? Jacob, yeah. Michael, so a couple of days later, they decide to use the ladder on one test battalion. Yours. Just an infinitesimal dose in the food supply, they said, just to prove its effectiveness in the field. They were sure your unit would have the highest kill ratio of any of the whole goddamn offensive, and they were right. You did. Except not in the way they thought. Jacob, no one can remember that night. I get flashes, but they don't make sense. What happened? Was there an offensive? Michael, yeah. A couple of days later, it was fierce, but you guys never saw it. Jacob, but there was an attack. It was a fight, right? Michael, yeah, but not with the Kong. Jacob, with who? Michael, you killed each other. Jacob, what? Michael, it was brother against brother. No discrimination. You tore each other into pieces. Jacob, my God. Michael, I knew it would happen. I warned them. I fucking warned them. Jacob, oh, fuck. Michael, who was I? I was just some hippie chemist, right? What did I know? Fuck. I talked to the guys who bagged the bodies. They were in worse shape than you. Believe me. They saw what was left. I needed to find you, you know. I felt responsible. The latter was my baby. And then Jacob is very um, shocked and looks very dumbfounded at this information he just received. And it's like now he's kind of realizing what's going on, that maybe he is dead. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like his realization after he hears this guy telling the story. It's kind of like you see Jacob at first is very shocked at the information. But I think he's shocked because 
he's starting to realize that maybe he really is dead. So then at the very end of the movie, when we realize that these aren't actually flashbacks, it shows Jacob is really dead. And then um, the guy's like, he's gone. So, and then right after that, there's like this flash, a caption that is put on the um, screen. And it says, it was reported that the hallucinogenic drug BZ was used in experiments on soldiers during the Vietnam War. The Pentagon denied the story. So um, that's pretty much what this, so that's what the movie um, is reflecting in history now. When I was looking at this, when I read that, I was like, ah, because I didn't know that this was a conspiracy or something that supposedly happened. But that's definitely what this movie, when I say reflecting on history, this movie is reflecting on that concept that it was a conspiracy and that people were told that Vietnam soldiers were being fed this drug to increase their aggressiveness and increase their fight power. Um, so this movie was kind of tapping into that. So now I'm thinking, what happened? What's going on in this movie? So, okay. So remember the opening scene I told you, the soldiers, that happened. But it wasn't the enemy who attacked them. It was them. They turned on one another due to the drug that they ingested unintentionally that was administered to them unknowingly by the government to increase their aggression and make them fight more. Jacob was injured during this attack. And his flashbacks are actually what's really happening during, quote, I'd say real time. So again, they're not really flashbacks, but throughout the movie, we're supposed to think that they're flashbacks. So he's basically like going in and out of consciousness. And the, quote, flashbacks are when he's conscious is what I see. And that everything else is going that's going on in the movie is when he's back, in, you know, he's unconscious again. So at the very end, again, you know, we see Jacob's dead body, you know, and the corpsman is working on him and he says, you know, he's gone. And that's when, you know, we realize he's dead and the caption goes up. So what I believe is that, um, that, sorry, what I believe is that Jacob was on a journey through purgatory. Like I said, like he was dying, but because he was still going in and out of consciousness, he was still tethered to this world and not able to move on to the spirit world or heaven, you know, whichever you believe. So again, the flashbacks aren't really flashbacks. They're real time. It's what Jacob's going through when he's unconscious or pretty much on the verge of dying, um, he's he's in those different realities, which is happening in the rest of the movie, but he's still tethered to this world because he hasn't accepted what's happened in his life, as Louis said, you know, so he's still kind of tethered, which is why I think he's going in and out of consciousness throughout the movie. But I feel that once Jacob accepted that he was dead, once he heard the story of what really happened about the drug experiment on his battalion, that's when he realized he was really dead. And once he was able to let go of that grief and guilt, because that's another thing he was really holding on to was this grief and guilt over the death of his son. Once he was able to let that go, he, you know, he was able to move on. And I think at that point it's supposed to be showing you like, because he holds, you know, Gabe's hand, Gabe's like, come on, dad, come on. It's everything's okay. And he takes him up the stairs to the afterlife. It's supposed to show that like Jacob in the end, he, he, He's with peace with his life. He made peace with his life. He made peace with the death of his son because now he can be with his son again and he's able to let go and cut the, you know, he's not tethered to this world anymore and he's able to move on to the afterlife. So I hope that makes sense. So the movie, it it's very much, again, like it's um, very symbolic of a lot of different things. I think in one area, you can see it as a very much a metaphor for PTSD. You can see it as a complete metaphor for, you know, death and, purgatory but i think 
once you see that scene of Michael explaining the drug, everything kind of wraps up and you realize what's really going on, which for me was Jacob's in purgatory. When he's conscious, it's the quote flashbacks, but that's happening in real time. When he's unconscious, those different realities are woven in because he's still tethered to this world because he hasn't let go of the grief and guilt that he was experiencing over Gabe. And he hasn't been able to actually accept his life for what it was. Once he let go of all that, um, he was able to move on to the afterlife, the spirit world, heaven, whatever you believe in. I personally believe in the spirit world. He was able to move on peacefully and be with his son again. So that's basically what I think the whole movie is wrapped up in a nutshell. So, so now I'm going to move on to my reviews. Horror from History says, a number of 1990s horror movies reflect this unique existential anxiety, which is talking about the new millennium Y2K. Rather than exploring big issues of good versus evil, sin versus repentance, eternal life and final death through a Catholic lens, like in the 1970s, this new era of horror takes a less doctrinal, more humanist approach. If you have no faith, are you frightened about what happens after you die? Jacob's Ladder and The Sixth Sense have some thought-provoking answers. Worried that, outside of a religious framework, the bad deeds of others go unpunished? Little White Lies says, The fear of letting go is crystallized in a low-key scene where Jacob is visited in the hospital by his wife, Sarah. I still love you, she tells him, whatever it's worth. An off-camera voice hisses, dream on. It's an uncomfortable reminder of the task we all eventually face, surrendering love, memory, and identity before ascending to whatever realm awaits us beyond this one. So overall, this movie is an intriguing, dreamlike, sometimes confusing look into the mind of soldiers after coming home from war. This movie covers many subjects, war, flashbacks, death, mental illness, all woven into a single story as we follow Jacob Singer on his journey, trying to keep his sanity despite all the horrors he's experiencing. It does get a little confusing and kind of hard to follow at times, but the ending, in my opinion, wraps the entire story up in a nice little bow. Although I do understand that Jacob was dead the entire time, I think this movie can be seen as a metaphor for what soldiers feel and experience, mentally, physically, and spiritually, after war. You know, the inner demons they must fight and the flashbacks you know, the flashbacks they must endure. This movie shows you the inner working mind of a soldier suffering from PTSD. I remember seeing trailers for this movie on TV and kind of wanting nothing to do with it. And then as I got older, I remember passing it like on the shelf of the video store. And I kept telling myself, you need to rent this one one of these days. So I'm happy that I finally got around to seeing this movie because it actually is a really good movie. It's very much a psychological horror that messes with your mind and takes you on a crazy and confusing ride. And again, if you haven't seen this movie, I, I tell you, give it a chance and you, you should watch it. It's got a lot of symbolism and metaphors. And, you know, like I said, it's confusing and kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to follow at times. But I do think once you see the, um, the part where Michael explains what's going on and you get to the ending, I think it, I think it wraps everything up like nicely and you finally realize what's really going on. So I'm just going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoy the show. Again, thank you for listening, especially when I flub up, you know, and have to backtrack. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you. Thank you.